As we began our service, we announced that Pastor Stephen has taken ill, lost his voice, says he feels better than he sounds, though he cannot speak. And so our speaker, we've invited and asked Dr. Doug Bookman to come and bring God's Word. Dr. Bookman has served the Lord for many years as a pastor, professor in college, professor in seminary. He serves now here at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He has received his doctoral degree in New Testament studies and Bible exposition, and his specialization is in the area of the life of Christ. And to that end, he has studied God's Word on the birth, the life, the death of Christ at levels very few of us ever have opportunity to. It's a delight to have him preach the Word. It's a great thrill to have him as part of our ministry here at Colonial in the seminary. After the 8 o'clock hour was heard out in the hallway, mother was walking her young child, and the, the young son uh, was being told, it is just great hearing the story that Dr. Booker told this morning. And so uh, we're going to invite, and would you join with me please as we welcome Doug Bookman, or as the young people know him, Booker. Okay, and let's invite him to our pulpit. Well, thank you, and it certainly is a delight and a privilege. Uh, I'm sorry that Stephen is is suffering just a bit, but it is good to hear that he feels good. But in his absence, I would like to uh, wax bold to take some liberty with a... uh, Perhaps the story in the, in, the, in the Bible, which is the most familiar and the most uh, precious, and that is the story of the nativity, the story that uh, is appropriately uh, before us in this season. You know, Pastor Burgraff began by taking us to John 1 and that magisterial prologue to John's gospel, and it culminates with that twice-repeated phrase that uh, we beheld Jesus, uh, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you know, it, it, it occurs to me that the big word in that phrase, grace and truth, the really big word is the word and. Because in the Old Testament, God made himself known as a God of grace. And he certainly made himself known as a God of truth, a God who would be true to his character. But the question that must have haunted to one degree or another the Old Testament saint was how God could be both gracious to lost men and true to his character. Or to ask the same question, as Paul articulated in Romans 3, how can God be at once just and the justifier of them that believe? The answer in Paul's bottomlessly blessed two-word phrase, the answer is in Christ. It's because we are accepted in the beloved one that God can pronounce us absolutely righteous without compromising his righteousness. We are in Christ. And the narrative by which God through his son wrought that marvelous, marvelous economy of salvation begins with the story of this remarkable nativity. And that's where I'd like us to focus. And what I'd like to do, I'm going to be very, very surgical. No, I can't do that. But I'm going to, I'm going to try and there are, there are three points I'd like to make to you. They're horribly, in some way, pedantic points, but I think taken together they'll be a help to you. Because I want us to refine our understanding of the nativity narrative we have in the scriptures. And we, it's very, very careful. We have these two remarkable, extensive narrative portions in Matthew and Luke that are tremendously important and, 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 and tremendously detailed. And we come away with a full account of that narrative. But I would submit to you that our besetting sin, and and this is not unique to this crowd or any other, it's just the sort of 
uh, what it is to be, be human. But our besetting sin is to read this in terms of our own culture. And I think because we do that, because we contemplate the nativity narrative in terms of our culture, we, we, we miss some points. And, and so I'd like to, at three specific areas, or in three specific particulars, uh, uh, kind of refine our thinking with regard to this narrative. Now, before I do, let me take you to Isaiah 53. You know, Isaiah 53, the servant song, and these are familiar verses, but I want them to be sort of ringing in your soul spirit as, as we go because uh, clearly, you know, Paul in his grand canonic hymn in Philippians 2, uh, this, this hymn which celebrates the self-emptying of Jesus. Don't go there, but you remember I have you in Isaiah 53. But Paul alludes to the same thing where he talks about, uh, let, he says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, being manifest as God, the second person of the triune Godhead, on occasion took upon himself some physical form. In the Old Testament, we call those theophanies or Christophanies. And, and, and in most cases, when, when, when he did that, there was a glory and a fulgence which was appropriate to his being. And so this God who not only was God, but who had manifested himself in a form, a physical form, appropriate to who he was in the Old Testament on occasion, and who was thus acknowledged, you had to. Time out. You know what I'm saying? There, there were times in the Old Testament where, where we call them theophanies, where Jesus, I, we learn, and it's a long process to put it together, but not all that long, but I'll not take time to do it. But we can demonstrate biblically that it was, in fact, specifically the second person of the triune Godhead who on occasion would appear. All right? You talk me into it. Where we do it, it's, no, I, I won't spend any time with it, but in John chapter 8, when Jesus is contesting with the Pharisees, and he says, before Abraham was, I, I am. And they said, wait a minute, you're not 50 years old. You mean you were here with Abraham? And he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad in it. That's a reference to Genesis 18. That's a time when Abraham entertained three angels. And one of them he discovered to be, well, he, he entertained three strangers. Then he discovered to be angels. And one of them he prayed to. And clearly that one was the angel of the Lord who is divine. So my point is that there were times in the Old Testament, one of the most Remarkable, and I know this is open to some discussion, but I believe that the fourth individual in the fire in Daniel chapter 3 was a theophany. And what's strange about that, do you remember where I'm taking you here? I'm jerking you all around the Old Testament all of a sudden. But you remember when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire having thrown in uh, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow? Is that how you grew up? But uh, <laughs> That's what we always used to say when we were But having thrown those three, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abed- and Abednego, into the, forgive me, into the fire, you remember that uh, Nebuchadnezzar looked in and he saw one, and he said, there are four, and one of them has the appearance of a son of the gods. There was something about that fourth individual which, which made it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that this wasn't just another man. I think, and I can't prove it, but I think it was brilliant. I think as Jesus appeared in the midst of a kiln, heated seven times hotter than normal, a kiln that must have been so bright that, it, bright that it was hard to look into. There was an effulgence, a physical effulgence about him, which Nebuchadnezzar immediately said, that fourth person is not just another man. Now my point is, back to Philippians 2, Jesus, having existed not only as God, but having manifested himself in a way that made it clear that he was God, emptied himself. Of what did he empty himself? He did not empty himself of deity. That's a, an unthinkable thought. He, un, he emptied himself of the glory, the reputation, the honor, the worship that was rightfully his. And he humbled himself and he became obedient. Now, now that, that idea, and I believe, folks, that we will spend eternity happily with uncorrupted minds trying to explore the depths of what it means 
for this one who is God, very God, to become man. And we'll never fully plumb what that means. But there is a depth of, Paul calls it self-emptying. But he, again, he did not empty himself of deity. He emptied himself of the glory. He set aside, mild he lay his glory by. Well, you get a foretaste of that in Isaiah 53. Where we're told, and, and, and read this in terms of a, 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 a line of messianic prophecy where Israel had been taught, well, mankind, I should say, had been taught since the dawn of fallen human history. Genesis chapter 3, the first time uh, God responds after he, he begins to promise this Messiah, this seed of the woman who will crush the skull of the serpent. And mankind has been taught to long for this one and to, to, to anticipate the coming of this glorious Messiah, Savior. Now, strangely enough, we're told in Isaiah that when he comes, Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed our report, this is, this is incredible, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, he'll grow up a form as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. This is Messiah. We're anticipating his coming, but we're told that there'll be no form nor comeliness, that we should desire him. He'll be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we didn't esteem him. Now, we know that in the broader life of Jesus, and especially as we move on toward the passion. But I want to submit to you, and this is where I'm taking you, that to a degree that maybe we are, ah, we, we, we don't fully appreciate, even in the nativity, there is a shame and an ignominy attached to that story that I think is very, very central to the story, and I think we miss because... We read it in terms of our own culture. So let me just hie myself to my points. I'm going to make three, uh, three particulars in which I want us to kind of rethink, recalibrate our heads when it comes to understanding this nativity narrative. And the first one is this, and I, as I say them, they always seem so pedantic, but, but they're really important. The first one has to do with the relationship between Mary and Joseph. They were married. They weren't engaged. They weren't pledged. They were married. Now... In order to really appreciate what's at stake, well, let me say, first of all, that's what the Bible says. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, for instance, uh, I'll be going back between Matthew and and Luke, but in Matthew chapter 1, it says that uh, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Uh, Sometimes you'll have the old King James word espoused. But to be betrothed is to be married. When you think of it as an engagement, it throws everything a kilter, and quite frankly, you leave a lot of the drama out of it. But in order to appreciate that drama, you've got to understand what marriage was like. So I'm going to take a few minutes and talk to you, and I know many of you are familiar with this, but I'll tell you what, you need to know it, and it's well worth rehearsing because of this story, but all throughout the scriptures. Again and again, we encounter marriage terminology and figures, and and you have to have an ear that's, uh, or a soul spirit that's well attuned to it, and then you have to understand something of how it happened. Now, let me, let me talk to you. This is the way marriage was, was, was done in the Jewish world, and frankly is today in many uh, Orthodox Jewish settings. But number one, the marriages were arranged. And so you, and, and, and by the way, let me back up real quickly. It's important to understand all of this in terms of a clan structure. When you read the Bible, these people, even, I mean, there was a time where they're nomadic clans and they moved about, and then even after they became more urbanized, more sedentary, more settled in, they still lived as clans. And your whole life was a function of your clan. And a clan is an extended family. And a clan grows as you bear sons. Now, if you bear a daughter, 
she's going to grow up and you're going to marry her to another clan and she's going to strengthen that clan. But if you bear a son, he's going to grow up and you're going to fetch him a wife from another clan. They're going to have children and enlarge your clan. That's hugely important. That's why clans are so important. And by the way, the clan was led. And even after there was, in the Old Testament, if somebody kills somebody in your clan, what do you do? You call 911? There's nobody home, right? Even when there were governments, they weren't there. They were there to take your taxes. They weren't there to protect you. You had to appoint a blood avenger. And that blood avenger had to go and and chase that man down and bring him to the judge, and the judge would hear the evidence and so on. Everything was a function of your clan. Your security, your safety, your prestige was a function of your clan. And as the clan grew, you you, you had greater prestige and so on. And by the way, each clan was ruled over ultimately by basically the eldest living male in the clan, and he was called the ruling father. Can you say that in Latin? He was called the pater archos, the patriarch. So when you read about the patriarch, that's a clan concept, and they're, they're ruling over the clan. Now, I say that because in Jewish culture, they would marry quite young by our standards. And I grow a little weary of the hubris of modernity by which we arrogate ourselves to the notion, this conceit that we're so much cleverer and more mature. These people are so much more mature than we are but, uh, at that age. But I won't get into that. But the fact of the matter is that still... Probably the young lady was around 14. Certainly Mary wasn't older than about 14 or 15 when she bore the Christ child. And the young man would normally be about 15, and, uh, 15 or 16. And I know, I don't want to get into it, but there's a fiction that Joseph was older. It's, uh, I think it's totally bogus. I can tell you where it comes from, but I think this was a normal. This was a young man. So what would happen is that the clan of the young man would approach the clan of the young woman. Generally, it was somebody, a part of that clan, maybe a part of the family, who knew the groom well. And he would approach the family of the bride and offer them this, this contract by which their children would be wed. By the way, that, one, that man who would approach the family was usually called the friend of the bridegroom. Take that with you to John chapter 3. Now, the point is that then, the, if, if it was agreed to, there would be a betrothal. And they would come together before a judge. There would be a contract. They would sign that contract. That contract would define the period of the betrothal. There would be several months after the betrothal before the wedding. That's what you got to straighten out in your head. The betrothal came several months before the wedding. And during that period, it was called the betrothal period, the groom's basic responsibility was to prepare a home. The bride's basic responsibility was to make herself beautiful. Because after those several months of preparation, there would actually be a wedding. Now, the wedding was very, very simple. The groom would simply go to the home of the bride and fetch her to the place that he had prepared. That was the wedding. Now, there would be a wedding march. And that wedding march would wend its way through the street, and and the the bride would be adorned in all of the finery that she had prepared and so on, and she'd often be held aloft on a chair and carried along. And if you were wealthy enough, you'd hire singers and poets and and all sorts to to make it merry and so on. But but it was a time, and, and by the way, there was no time in Jewish life where it was more incumbent upon you to shed whatever there was of melancholy and to make merry than a wedding. You made merry. As a matter of fact, if you were just walking down the street, you'd go into the grocery store, and here comes a wedding march, and you don't know these people. That's all right. You put your groceries down, and you get it on for a while. You don't just stand there and watch. You get it on. And because it's, it's remember the guy who, in Jesus' parable, who had a drab garment at a wedding feast? They threw him out. You can't do that. 
And so every, as a matter of fact, I was telling the last hour that there's, you remember, just to make my point, that you, you, you really, it was incumbent upon you, and you, it would be an insult not to, not to actually engage in the merriment for a minute. Then you pick up your groceries and go on home, for heaven's sakes. But in the meanwhile, you remember how, you remember the wicked Queen Jezebel? You remember how she died? I always say this is, a, this is one of the biblical stories for which you're going to be hard-pressed to find in flannel graph, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, if you know that story, I appreciate what I'm saying. But, uh, but the fact of the matter is that what it says is that she was thrown down and, and devoured by the dogs. But uh, the Bible says that, that the dogs devoured all of her, save the soles of her feet and the palms of her hands. And, and the Jewish rabbis have an interesting midrash on that. And they say that the reason, as wicked as she was, the reason God spared the soles of her feet and the palms of her hand was because when she encountered a wedding march, she danced and clapped. Now, I don't know that she was all that advantaged by God's grace in that regard, but, but the fact is, I, all I'm saying to you is that to the Jewish mind, that's how central it was that you make Mary. All right, so here comes this wedding march, and it makes its way on the appointed day, and that day, that's what you show up for. You don't come for the betrothal. That's a private thing. But you show up for the wedding march. And now the wedding march makes its way to the home that the groom has prepared, and there is the wedding feast. And that will go on for several days, and uh, during that time, it's kind of an open house. You come when you can. There's always food. You bring gifts and so on. And it's important that throughout that entire time, you make merry. This is why it was so horrific that they wanted wine at that wedding feast in John chapter 2. And Mary, who was in charge of that feast, was so concerned and so on. So that's basically, and then I'll say, and, and very delicately, but it was on that night... On the, the first night of the wedding feast that uh, the bride and groom would repair to the wedding chamber. And that's where they came together physically. But the fact, and, and by the way, in that regard, you can imagine that the betrothal being what it was. As I say, it took a divorce to break a betrothal. So once they were betrothed those months earlier, they were legally man and wife. And, and therefore you can imagine that the temptation might have been the, the, the more compelling. And, and so in many cases, the temptation to carelessness and in many cases, the bride would absent herself. She would go away for a few months, and that's exactly what Mary does. She goes to stay with Elizabeth. That's just the protocols of the day. Does that make sense to you? Now, with all that in mind, and by the way, before I go ahead, you know, I said earlier that there are, it shows up so many places and we miss it sometimes. Think about, well, this is a, an aside, so don't get confused, <laughs> but think about John 14. Jesus is in the upper room. He's going to be arrested within a few hours, tried, and on a cross. Uh, his disciples have had one of the best weeks of their lives. Uh, Jesus has been talking for some weeks about dying, and they won't hear it, but on Sunday he rode into town. The whole city welcomed him as king. On Monday he cleansed the temple, and then for two days he, he, he totally controlled the temple, behaved more messianically than any other time in his life. So here it is Thursday night. We're on a roll here. And now Jesus begins to talk once again about how I'm going to go away, and I think they're crestfallen and, and disappointed. They don't want to hear this talk. And then Jesus says to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Now what he's saying there is, if you can't trust me, you can trust my father who has a great plan. In my father's house are many mansions. We take that apart. We try and figure out heaven. I think all Jesus is saying is, my father is the leader of a great clan. In his house are many mansions. Now, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to return and take you to myself that where I am, 
there you may be also. That's wedding terminology. And he introduces it by saying, my father can be trusted. See the point? And just, you develop a, a, an antenna for that wedding terminology in so many cases, it, 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 it's there. Well, let's, let's apply that now. That's what it means. So there is a lot of cultural information. I was going to say baggage, but it's not baggage. There's a lot of, of the culture that's embedded in that when it simply says that there was a young woman who had been betrothed to Joseph. So if you're living in that culture, if you're reading that from that culture, you understand that when that betrothal was made, it was announced and word went out. And all of Joseph's family and all of Mary's family and all the folks there in Nazareth and people down in Bethlehem were alerted. There is a happy day coming. Young Joseph has been betrothed to beautiful Mary and the day is coming when there will be a wedding. And here it is. It would have been announced. I don't believe it was a secret. I'd like to talk about that, but I, it would have been part of the betrothal because you have to get there. But now, what happens? She's betrothed, an angel comes, tells her she's going to bear the Christ child. She, I think probably in accord with the protocols of that day, makes her way down to a a, a, a village in the Judean hill country where lives her cousin Elizabeth. She's there for three months. Now the baby John is born, and and so Mary returns to Nazareth. When she comes, she's found with child. She's betrothed. The wedding march has not happened. You can't overstate the shame, the embarrassment, the ignominy, the anger on the part of her family and, and, and Joseph's family. Uh, well, not Joseph immediately, but it's interesting when you put the story together. Here's Joseph living in Nazareth. Here comes his betrothed. Word begins to spread. Wait a minute. She's carrying a child. And Joseph discovers that it's true. You know, time on. It's interesting that those who disbelieve the scriptures insist that there are all these disparities and contradictions. So one of the areas they go to is the nativity narrative. And they say, you know, you got this story about the angel coming to Mary over here. Look, you got this story about the angel coming to Joseph and Matthew. They're disparate. Oh, no, they fit together perfectly so well. Because I don't want to be at all indelicate here, but think about this. Mary knows very well how this child was conceived. Joseph simply knows that the woman to whom he is betrothed, his legal wife, is carrying a child. Now, again, I don't want to be indelicate, but I have heard, and I think without spending any time rehearsing them, that you have heard as well some really, really wild stories made up by young women who have done wickedly and want to cover their guilt. You know what I'm saying? Try this one. See what I'm saying? Mary is in a tight spot here. And God graciously sends an angel to Joseph. But look what he says. And I want you to catch this. And, and, and there's one word I want you to eyeball. So, so do, you, do you understand? A, a Joseph and Mary are betrothed. The announcement has gone out. There is excitement. This, this, and, and, and people are making ready for that day and anticipating it. And now Mary comes back and she's carrying a child. And Joseph is heartbroken. And in verse 20 it says, While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not, now eyeball, look at it, verse 20. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary. Do you have a word there, as? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do you have that in your text? It doesn't belong there. And it throws everything off. Because, see, that's by our culture. If the angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, what does that mean? 
He's not married yet. They were married. And what it says is, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Joseph, go get her. No dancing, no rejoicing, no singing. You probably have to do it under cover of night because she'd be spat upon if you just brought her home in public. But Joseph, go get her. Bring her to the home you prepared. That would be their wedding. Now, of course, she's going to remain, they're not going to have relations until after the Christ child is born, but Joseph is told by the angel to go fetch his wife and bring her home. And again, I'm going to stress, you can't overstate the measure of ignominy there was in that. I think Joseph's own clan was probably very, very upset. Now here he is living with this woman who's carrying a child. She bore, she conceived before the wedding night. Joseph insists it's not his child. We know nothing about that. We'll trust perhaps our relative Joseph, but the fact of the matter is that is a horrible, horrible embarrassment. Does that make sense to you? That's what I want you to see. When you understand they were betrothed, not only does it mean that they were not just engaged, but they're coming. In other words, think about it this way. There had gone out this happy message that Mary and Joseph are betrothed and there's to be a wedding. But then some three, three and a half months later, there had gone out another message. There's going to be no wedding. Mary's carrying a child. She insists that she's not done wickedly, but she's carrying a child. And that would have been such a heartache and embarrassment to not only to Mary and Joseph, but to everybody involved. I think you need to bring that with you. All right, a second point at which I'm going to ask you to kind of refine, refine, uh, refine your understanding. I've got to be quick here. Uh, why did Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem? Well, let's back up just a step. They live in Nazareth, though their home is in Bethlehem. Quite frankly, at this point in human history, most people live their whole life out where they were born. So you've got to ask yourself, and it's only, we can only be conjecture, but, uh, uh, speculative, but I think we can be fairly confident. Why were Mary and Joseph's family living up in Nazareth? Anyway, Nazareth is on a ridge just north of the Jezreel Valley in the heart of Galilee. It's about 65 miles from Bethlehem. Uh, if you can go the straight course, the ridge course, but, the ridge route. But what, what are they doing up there? That's not their territory. It's not where their family are. Well, I think the answer is probably this. We're told explicitly that Joseph was a tectone. He was an artisan. He was a craftsman. I know that's come to us as carpenter. I'm sorry, this is going to ruin the morning for many of you, but he probably was not a carpenter. Uh, he was probably a stonemason. The, 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 the word is not at all explicit, and the problem you have is that there was no wood in Israel. I know there was more trees in Israel in antiquity, but they were never lumber-grade trees. They were always stick-grade trees, and so you really didn't build anything with wood, even furniture. You didn't build with wood very much. You built it with stone. Everything was stone. And probably, and I, it breaks my heart, I love carpentry. I'd love, I love the yoke is easy story, but it, it, it won't work, but, uh, if you know that story. But, but uh, the fact is, I think, but, but the point is, here, here's the thing. Herod had, all right, Herod the Great dies in connection with Jesus' birth. By my chronology, within weeks of Jesus' birth, Herod the Great dies. But Herod the Great had to a degree that you can hardly appreciate, had reinvigorated the economy uh, and the fortunes of little Israel. He had taken a third-rate backwater little province and turned it into one of the most amazing uh, areas in all the Roman Empire. And there were people coming from all over the world 
to engage in this building process that Herod was engaged in. And, and one of the things he was doing was building a city called Sepphoris. Now, you maybe never heard of Sepphoris. It doesn't show up in the New Testament. It's a hugely important city in Galilee. As a matter of fact, Herod the Great had determined to make Sepphoris the crown jewel of Galilee. And he was pumping all kinds of money into it. And you can take you there today and show you these, uh, these mosaic floors with this beautiful mosaic of a woman that's called popularly the, the Mona Lisa of the Galilee and so on. So we know that, that Herod was pumping, that, that there was money to be made and work to be had in, in Sepphoris. And Sepphoris is about five miles down the hill from Galilee. It's an easy, easy walk. And, and I think Nazareth was the Jewish territory, the Jewish center, and it was, it was kind of the low-rent district. So I think most probably Joseph and, and both their families had moved here because there was work to be had. Now, let me talk about that real quickly. All work in Jesus' day was day work. And, and, and Joseph, as an artisan, almost certainly would work with, with a bunch of guys, kind of a work gang, and they would work together day by day, and they would go down the hill to Sepphoris and be assigned to a, to a project, and they would give themselves to working together on laying that wall or whatever it was for that day, and then they'd collect the day's wage and go home. That's, that's what life was like in the first century, and I think that's undoubtedly, I, mean, I say undoubtedly, I think that's very, very likely why he's, working, why he's living in Nazareth. All right, come back to it. They're living in Nazareth. They make a trip to, 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 to Bethlehem. All, I, I'm going to get you here. Uh, we all have this notion that it was a quick trip. They just said, run down there, register, get back. Right? They were just going down to register. And for some reason, they decided to do it at just a moment. Well, as a matter of fact, most people have the idea, I think, that it was like he had an appointment. Like he got a postcard. Bethlehem, town hall, 10 o'clock, Tuesday, be there. Right? <laughs> That's not the way it worked. And, and I, I could get into this and, and bore you even more than I am. But, but the fact is that Herod had died. Herod the Great had died. Herod, when he was king, Israel was a client state. And he had been allowed to reign as king there. But now Rome was deliberating what to do. And, they, and Herod was entirely in charge of the whole taxation system. If there's anything Rome wanted, it was funds out of their provinces. And so they were deliberating what they were going to do. In the midst of that deliberation, they decided they needed to take a census. And this census was strictly... For taxation purposes, I always tell people, the Romans, this, this is almost beyond our imagination, but the Romans were a government that had spent themselves into poverty, and the only thing they could think of to get back out of it was to tax their citizens more heavenly. Oh, perish the thought. But, but the fact is, <laughs> can you imagine these poor benighted ancient peoples? But, but the fact of the matter is that, that it was a tax. Not, but these, these, these sensi, these, these taxation registrations, would happen over a year. So they'd say within a year, and most people lived close to where they were, so it wasn't hard. But if you lived away somewhere within these months or years, so don't get the idea that there was one day and everybody had to come and it was crowded because of the registration. I know you hear that all the time. It's, it, it won't work. My point is this, and I'm taking way too much time. I would submit to you that Mary and Joseph had determined to move to Bethlehem. They were returning. They were quitting Nazareth. And, and, and I get that from three indications in the New Testament, in, in the record. Number one is he took Mary. Why in the world? He's just made, he didn't have to. And I've heard little explanations out there. They won't work. Why did he take Mary if he was intended to come right home? She was pregnant. I don't think she was quite as pregnant as you think, but I'll come to that in a minute. But she was pregnant. Secondly, uh, there is this remarkable reality that after Jesus was born, he was taken to Egypt. And then when Herod died... And with angelic direction, they came back to Israel. That's what it says. They came back to the land of Israel. But then, watch this, when they heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, Herod had left a will. And in that will, he had divided his kingdom among three sons. And the Romans deliberated for some time, then decided to honor the will. 
So now Joseph hears that Archelaus is ruling in the stead of his father, and Archelaus is more of a butcher than Herod the Great was. That's when they decided to return to Nazareth. Remember that? It's explicit. So they had come intending to settle there in the south in Judea, I think in Bethlehem, in his home. But now they decided to go back. And then the third thing, look at Luke 2 and verse 6 real quickly. Luke 2 and verse 6, is, and, and, and this is where it's really kind of strange that, that it's become... Again, we have this idea that they came screeching into town just in time for the baby to be born and went uh, knocking on one hotel door after the other and there were no vacancy signs up and down the strip and so finally it had to be born where, where, where animals were. Well, that, the fact is, look at Luke 2 and verse 6. It tells the story in verses 1 to 5 of the registration. I think the point is, the whole point of the registration is Joseph knew he had to get down to Bethlehem anyway. He knew he was going to have to make this trip. And so he decides just to move back there, I think, because it says in Luke 2, verse 6, so it was that while they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So they didn't come screeching into town the night the baby was born. They'd been there for some days, maybe weeks. I would, the way I put it together, probably several weeks that they had been there in town before the baby was born. So I'm saying to you, and I've got to be done with this, I would submit that really the record is quite clear implicitly but i think pretty compelling evidence that joseph and mary were not just making a quick trip to register by reason of the registration he knew he had to go to bethlehem and he had decided to move down there and i think that's rather clear in the text now here's the raw speculation above which i am not but uh uh yeah the question is why and i it's it's speculative I'm going to submit to you, honest to goodness, because I think it fits the story so well. It explains so many things. I think life had become entirely unlivable in Nazareth. I think by reason of Mary's bearing this child, carrying this child that she conceived, that she conceived before the wedding night, by reason of the fact that, you know, a good brother was just telling me before this service, and you research this because I haven't yet. I'm going to, but you research it. He says that that participle in Luke, when it's in Matthew, I'm sorry, where it says that uh, because he was a righteous man, he determined to put her away, uh, could be read, although he was a righteous man. As if to say that what you might have expected him to do was to punish her. But not only has he not punished her, he has taken her to his home. And I think very possibly, I think his fellows probably came to him and said, Joseph, we're not interested in you and having you as part of our work gang. You find your own work. We want distance from you. That's what would have happened. And I'm telling you that what the record is quite clear about is that they had relocated, they had determined to resettle down in Bethlehem. And I think very possibly, given the tenor of the story and what we know of that culture, that the reason was because it, it just became impossible to live. Now, I realize they're going to resettle there later on. Time's going to go by, and I could get into that, but, but uh, when they come back from Egypt, they're going to, out of, out of, out of desperation, because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, uh, a dangerous to be there in Bethlehem, so they're going to bite the bullet, if you don't mind, and return. I realize that, but... All right, a third thing, and this is in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, and I'll be quick and we'll be done. Luke 2 and verse 7, and this is where there is the greatest point of confusion, and that has to do with the place where the baby was born. Now, Luke 2 and verse 7 says very simply that she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Now, that is the only hint we have anywhere in the record as to the place. And it's clearly a place where animals were normally kept. There was a manger. But that's a little more uh, compelling than you might realize because you always think of the manger, which can easily, a little wooden thing, can easily be put in the storage 
closet behind the stage until next year's nativity play, right? But mangers in the first century, honest to goodness, look, look, in the first century you built, I said this before, you built with stone. And it, it was limestone, field stone wasn't good, and so you quarried your stone. You're going to build a building, you find a hillside somewhere with a decent uh, strain of limestone, and you simply begin, you dig a hole and you start to quarry those stones for your building. As you do, you leave behind a usable space. It might be a tomb, but in many cases it would be a stable for animals. And you'd leave a small opening, you could cover, but the animals could get in. But then as you quarried the stone, you would here and there in the, in the, in the cave, in the grotto, if you don't mind, you'd leave pieces of rock still attached to the earth, shape them as square columns, and then hollow out the top, and that would be your feeding trough. Now, again, I can show you dozens of these in Israel, especially up in Megiddo where, where Solomon had his horses and so on. But almost certainly the manger at stake here is a stone manger that you're not going to pick up and move around because it's still part of the earth. Does that make sense to you? And it's, it's, it's part of a cave. Now, it says that they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the point at which we have the greatest confusion. When you think of an inn, what in the world do you think of? I don't know why. In my mind, I always thought of a little, little picturesque inn somewhere in England by the river with maybe a water wheel and so on. I don't know. You do what you want with it. But, but, but you, 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 do you not think of a public hostelry, a place where you rent a room for the night that didn't exist in the first century? I know I'm taking on some big... Uh, names here, but I, I, I'm absolutely convinced. Look, some people will say, well, there were these things called khans, K-H-A-N, or caravansaris. There were. Those were small fortresses out in the open somewhere on an open road where caravans who were on an open road could find refuge from robbers and so on. They were small fortresses. This is not a khan. You don't have a khan in a city, ever. There was a khan on the road between J- Jerusalem and Jericho, where the, where the Good Samaritan took that man who had been beaten and so on. It's a different word. It's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here that's translated in is actually the word kataluma, and it means upper room. Every other time it's used in the New Testament, it means upper room. It's a reference to the place where Jesus took his disciples. How did upper room become in? Well, I'll tell you. The upper room, look, in, in, in Jewish life, you do a lot of living on the roof. It's, it's just it's a, an important space, and you build your house so you have access to the roof, and it'll support you and so on. One of the things, you might, might keep your flax up there, as did Rahab and so on, but, but one of the things you did is that's where you had your guest chamber. It might be very humble, just some sort of a shelter and maybe a curtain. It might be a nice room you'd built up there. But the place you would keep your honored guest was the kataluma, and every house had one. And, and, and what happened, by the way, is that Jerome in the Vulgate in the 4th century translated Cataluma guest chamber. I think understanding the culture. But then it came to us in the English as inn, and we get this really, really cockamamie idea, forgive me, of a, of a hotel. And it's, it's not what's at stake here. A lot of sermons about the innkeeper who missed Christian here going Christmas are going down, to, you know, I know that. But, but honest to goodness, this is not a public hostelry. It is the upper room. So what am I saying to you? Are you with me? Uh, that, that's exactly what the word means. And I think when you put it together, and this is, this is where I'm taking this whole thing, I think the narrative we come to is something like this. Joseph and Mary, godly young couple, waiting on Messiah. They are betrothed. They are legally husband and wife. They have a happy, productive life there with their clans and, and the little village of Nazareth and so on. Probably not large groups up there, but they're certainly there with family units. And they, are, they have been betrothed. Now an angel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to bear the Christ child. And she is going to bear him 
that child immediately uh, and, and, and that the Spirit of God is going to work in her to produce that child. She consents to that. Now she goes off to be with, Joseph, uh, with, with, with Elizabeth. She comes back three months later. She is bearing a child. There is an eruption of anger and resentment and everybody involved is horrified and embarrassed. And I would submit to you that, well, that's exactly what I said before, that the message having gone out, that there is going to be a wedding, now another message has gone out to make the point, you can, you can, you can scratch that day off your calendar because it's not going to happen because Mary's carrying a child. Life becomes so difficult that Mary and Joseph determined that the only wise thing to do is to move back where their families are and where they can find refuge. Now Joseph comes, and it's some weeks. Mary's, he, he brings Mary because they have no intent at that time of returning to Nazareth to live. But uh, Joseph would, he did what he would have done, the only thing he would have done, and that is he went to his family. And I think he comes to his family, and, 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 and they say to him, Joseph, we love you. We want to care for you. But your wife is carrying a child, which you insist is not yours. And which at any rate was conceived before the wedding. We cannot give you the place of honor. You can read that verse in Luke 2 here that says there was no room for them in the inn. It, it, it's literally there was no place for them. And you can read it, the, the inn, the kataluma, I should say, was no place for them. And I think Joseph's family probably said, look, we can put the animals to pasture for a little time. You can clean up the cave. It'll be warm. Dry, safe, and you can live there for a season, but we cannot give you the place of honor. So I think when you contemplate the Christmas narrative, you ought to understand that this young couple, and you remember the Bible says explicitly in Luke 2 that the, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should bear forth, bring forth a child. I would suggest that during those days, they were, by reason of that reference to a manger, living in a cave. And it was, it was a, a, a public rebuke. And I picture Joseph with some care scrubbing that manger again and again to get all of the filth out of it and cleaning it up as much as he can, laying some fresh grass there. And now the baby is born. And it's interesting that when he is born, the angels appear to the shepherds and they say, the shepherds say to the shepherds, I'm sorry, the angels say to the shepherds, unto you this Christ child is born and this shall be a sign unto you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's not the sign. That's what you do with the baby. Every baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes. You'll find him lying in a manger. That's the sign. What the angels are saying is, you'll know which child it is because you don't lay a baby in a manger. So the baby lying in a manger is, in fact, the Christ child. The reason that functions as a sign is because you don't do that with a child. But by reason of the shame and the ignominy, I believe Jesus, uh, that, 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 that accrued to the fact that Mary was carrying this child, Jesus was laid in a manger. My point is simply this, that you put that whole story together in terms of its own culture, and maybe we begin to understand that even in his birth, in that delightfully winsome and attractive and, 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 and heart-gripping story, even there, there is this note of shame. The reality that there was no form nor comeliness that we should despise him. One of the reasons I cherish the Christmas season is because we get to hear Wesley's magisterial Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We sang it. 
And this self-emptying, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Takes my breath away, forgive me, but takes my breath away. Here's this one who is God, very God. And he not only emptied himself of the glory, but he took upon himself the ignominy and shame and disrepute of a child perceived to be born of wickedness. And he did that in order that you, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Amen. I can't get past that very well. That gets a hold of me. Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die. Eternal word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him. Amen. This is a time of... uh, Christmas is a happy season. As you celebrate your Christmas, be reminded that this one who is infinitely rich for our sakes became poor. Amen. Our Father in heaven, you, uh, day by day, in ways that we are careless about, in ways that we... Altogether, too often overlook, you show yourself to be a loving and a giving God. And we are surrounded in this season and every season of the year by so many manifestations of what a good and gracious God, that every good gift comes down from you. We thank you for that. But above all, above all, there is this, that you have given us the gift of your Son. And in this blessed season, might we, even as we contemplate the marvelous uh, wonder of the Christ child, might we be remembered of the awful price that he paid. We have been bought with a price, and his birth and his life and the death that he died is that price with which we have been purchased. Might we indeed glorify you, our Father, for that which you have given us on our behalf. And we pray that in the name of that blessed Savior whose birth we celebrate. Amen. Amen.